Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Today I'm speaking with Chris Haddox, Assistant Professor of Interior Design and Design Studies at West Virginia University, where his teaching efforts revolve around the minor in sustainable design, a robust program he created while a visiting assistant professor at WVU. This minor draws students from across the university who wish to broaden their thinking about the development and management of our communities. His research interests focus on evidence-based design of rural healthcare facilities, arts-based community development, and green housing. His service is dedicated to a variety of initiatives, most notably community development. Chris Haddox, you're very welcome to the show. I wanted to start off by asking you, what is your superpower? I think my superpower is probably, I'm, I'm a songwriter and a musician. And I, I kind of bring that sense to, to my work. I, I think I can connect with people really well and really in a real genuine way. And, uh, and that's helped me in my research quite a bit. Okay. So I think that's my superpower today anyway. That's a fantastic place to start. So you're about the people connection business. So talk us through your career. How did you come to do what you're doing now? Well, it's, it's, it's a convoluted path. I grew up in southern West Virginia in the, in the coal fields. My family were not coal miners, but my family was from southern West Virginia. My dad became a dentist. He was a first-generation college student, you know, and, and uh, grew up in a very poor family and went, went to college. And uh, so I grew up in a healthcare family. We, we were a very small town, and my dad was a well-respected dentist, and, and he took care of anybody regardless of their ability to pay or anything else. He just was trying to help people. My sister is a dentist. My brother is a dentist. My brother is a doctor as well, physician. I started down that path and, and decided that wasn't the path for me. Um, so I wound up in, in uh, I've done a variety of things. I've worked in affordable housing. I've worked as a musician. I've worked at repairing musical instruments. When I Before this job, I was in affordable housing, and I did that for about 10 years. And it was during that time that I really kind of started making the connection between the built environment and people's health and well-being, aside from just having shelter. Yes. Uh, so looking at the quality of that shelter and, and how it could help them engage in a more full life in the community if they weren't worrying about where they were going to spend the night and mm -hmm. could they. So I did that for 10 years. And then I worked with a green building organization uh, that trained builders in green building techniques. And then I landed here at West Virginia University. Uh, really, I thought it would be a temporary. It was a visiting position. And we have an interior design program. And I was hired to start talking about healthy indoor environments and, and bringing kind of the green building perspective. Uh, and so one thing led to another. And, and my, um, my major professor, uh, she, well, she convinced me to go get my PhD. I was very close to a PhD already. And she said, hey, you know, this healthcare design might be a way for you to really bring together a lot of the things that you've been doing in your life. And so I did. And that's kind of how I you know, I went to a healthcare design conference and was like, wow, this is, this is pretty interesting. So that's kind of, that, that, you know, it's, it was a twisty windy way to get to where I am. Yeah. Okay. So your perspective then is really about healthy design. What are the factors there? What, what are the nuances that you think actually make for that kind of environment? Well, I, I think for my situation, so I'm particularly interested in rural health 
We live in a very rural state. And when I went to this first conference, it was a lot of fascinating research. It was a lot of big design firms, a lot of big hospital settings. And, you know, for there were a lot of people kind of pounding their chest about, you know, look what we've done. Mm. And I kept raising the question about, well, what about rural facilities? They they can't hire a big high-powered healthcare design firm. And how how do they access this knowledge to improve their facilities? Because so much healthcare is delivered in a rural setting. And I got a lot of, yes, you're right, but basically there's no money in that. <laughs> there's there's no research money for that. So I just kept pushing and finally I decided, well, I guess I'm going to have to go out and and be one of those people that starts looking. How do we translate the knowledge from these, you know, projects that that are funded and studied? How do we translate that knowledge down to the smaller facilities? And so my first project was working with a rural healthcare system in southern West Virginia that had 10 clinics over a four county area. And they had decided to build a new facility to treat a subset of their patient population. Yes, They wanted to have a space for their elderly population. And so I was introduced to them and I said, well, you know, what are you going to do differently in this, in this space? And they go, well, we don't really know. I said, well, why are you doing something? Why are you building a new space? Well, because we think we could deliver healthcare more effectively in a different space. Well, you know, what's it going to look like? How are you going to measure if you're doing anything? And they didn't have any, so they just had this gut feeling they could do something better. Uh, they had hired an architect who was not a healthcare architect. He was just just an architect. First time they'd hired an architect, because anytime they usually just had the contractor, you know, we need three exam rooms and we need a waiting room. And so something was telling them we can probably do better. So I asked them if I could come down and they said, you know, it's too bad we just met you because we've already got the design. And I said, well, what do your patients think about this? What do they think would make them, you know, if we're talking about patient engagement or activation or whatever the phrase we might want to use is, what do they think about this new place? Have you sought their input? And they kind of looked at me like, well, why would we seek their input? <laughs> so I said, well, can I come to Cal and talk to your patients? So I, I met with about 42 patients, uh, just did a little focus groups and asked them about the facility and what was working for them, what wasn't working, what worked for other facilities. This was a primary care, and they all went to specialty care in other places. And said, you know, do you have a do you have a doctor's office that you really like? You know, that it just works for you. Do you have doctor's offices you really avoid? So we chatted. We chatted about lighting. We chatted about noise. We chatted about privacy. We chatted about why am I sitting in this waiting room with a bunch of sick kids when I'm an 80-year-old man? I'm just here for a well checkup. We talked about staff turnover. Why I've been coming to this clinic since 1974. Why do I have to repeat my history every time I show up because there's somebody new at the desk? Um, and we talked about what design elements might be contributing to high staff turnover. So we talked about a variety of things, physical accessibility, why is the senior clinic going to be on the second floor of the building? Why is it so far away from the parking at the other clinic? You know, just and so at the end of the day, at the end of the week, I said, you know, we've talked about a lot of things. I said, do any of these things ever keep you from keeping an appointment? And their answer collectively was all the time. Wow. You know, I'm just I'm just not going to go there today. And as we talked about trying to get patient engagement, you know, they're all 
all the clinics I talked to, I said, is there one metric that everybody looks at? And it was no show rate. And at that time, I, I said, is that just what it sounds like? People missing appointments? And they said, yes. And I said, you know, that's the first level of engagement. If they're not even coming to the appointment, you've missed that opportunity for another six months to engage with that patient. And so when I backed up and asked these patients if any of these things impacted their willingness to show up, and they said, you know, all the time, I cancel appointments all the time because of this kind of stuff. So that kind of sent, you know, got my wheels turning. So I started looking at another population, and I, I looked at, uh, we have a Center for Excellence in Disabilities here in West, at, at West Virginia University. And we were trying to work with kind of cross-discipline. So I was working with an occupational therapist, and we were interested in the barriers to healthcare access that might exist for persons with disabilities. We didn't define what disabilities were. We just said, if you identify as someone with a disability, we would like to talk to you. And so we met with uh, we met with four different groups, uh, the board of directors of that organization. We met with caregivers of persons with disabilities. We met with healthcare providers who treated persons with disabilities. And then we met with persons who said they had disabilities. And we kind of did the same thing. Let's walk through, you know, do an imaginary walk through a facility and think about the sights, the smells, the sounds, the physical arrangement, all these things that just, you know, seem to work for you or seem to pose a problem. So we got more input on that. And then out of that, uh, one of the one of the disabilities, and I, I don't know that I would call it that now, but at the time, that's where it came out of, was autism. Mm -hmm. Persons with autism or persons who were caregivers of persons with autism and how challenging it was to be in a healthcare environment mm -hmm. if somebody was on the autism spectrum. Yeah. And so my research now, I'm working on a, a study for that, looking at the frequency with which certain barriers are encountered. And not surprisingly, lighting, noises sight, smell, sounds yeah. uh, that exist in the healthcare environment can be really challenging. And, and how do we, and, and I'm finding people report that their healthcare providers don't really understand the autism spectrum. And they just, they kind of expect the patient, you know, to just deal with it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're here at the doctor's office, you're just going to have to be uncomfortable. And then when I talked to some healthcare providers about ways we could accommodate those needs, those attitudes are kind of reinforced. I've had physicians say, well, you know, they just need to learn that that's how it is at a, at a doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And so that really is striking me. So I'm thinking about, you know, we persons, people modify their physical environments all the time. Yeah. If you're at home, you do things. If, if you happen to be autistic or have an autistic child or an autistic brother or parent, whatever, you make modifications around your house. And a lot of those are sensory. I'm like, well, what, what could we do? How could we modify that waiting room for, for that person? You know, what could we do to their physical space? Yeah. So I'm exploring virtual reality. I'm exploring noise-canceling headphones, just things. And, and so you kind of get to these nuances. It's a long way to get to nuances. But the facility really sends a signal to a patient that, you know, if, if they have to cross a threshold that's not accessible to get into the facility, yeah. That really sends a message to the patient. Does this facility, do they really care about me as a patient? Yeah. You know, yeah. why are they? So that's kind of where I'm, that, that's like the little groove I'm working in right now. Yeah, that is, that is really interesting. And I was just reflecting as you were talking, 
that my practice is in the center of Melbourne, right in the middle of the heart of the shopping district of Melbourne. Now, mm-hmm. below my office, there are shops that make millions of dollars every year mm-hmm. in trade. If the shops were set up in the way that we as healthcare providers set up our clinics, I think it would be very difficult to do business because <laughs> people are going yeah. to say, I'm not going to spend my money uh, on this very expensive watch or jewels or these clothes if you're going to set it up like somebody's backroom wardrobe. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. and, yet, and yet we're surprised. I'm surprised that our colleagues are surprised that people don't want to do business in a place that looks shabby. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and, and I found that a lot of these rural facilities, they all kind of had that gut feeling that, because they're oftentimes more as in, in buildings that were never designed to be health clinics. Yeah. They're in old school buildings. Yeah. They're in... They're in modular buildings that, you know, they weren't designed to be healthcare. And so they do have these accessibility issues. Mm. And people often like those places, but they're they're challenging. Mm. And I find that when I talk to a lot of the staff, I did a presentation to our rural health association here in West Virginia. And I had about 25 administrators there. And after the presentation, they all came up like, oh, wow, our waiting room's horrible. You know, our offices are horrible. You know, we go to Walmart, we go buy paint, bargain paint whenever we can. You know, they're all just kind of trying to, there's this collective sense that we need to spruce up the place. Mm. And I'm like, well, sprucing up is one thing, but thinking about, you know, one of the things that came up was just seating in the waiting room. We have a high percentage of persons with disabilities in West Virginia. So a lot of assistive devices. Uh, we have a high percentage of obese persons in West Virginia. So a standard chair won't work for a lot of people. Mm. And so we had some of these elderly persons telling me, I can't have my caregivers sit beside me in the waiting room mm. because either I can't get my wheelchair to where they are or they can't sit where my wheelchair needs to be. Yeah. The chairs don't fit. Yeah. You know, just things like that and, and doors being too heavy and So I had a grad student just do an accessibility kind of assessment on 10 facilities, Uh, just simple ADA, go in and let's measure things and let's just kind of see where you are. And and they they did okay, but the check-in was the biggest problem, counter height. Mm. You know, it was it was wrong in every in all 10 facilities that he went to. And, you know, that's your first point of interaction. And I was I was getting blood drawn at at our local hospital one day. And I was just paying attention. Yeah, it's kind of a stressful setting, uh, you know, the lab room of a big hospital. And two things that stuck out, I thought, well, I'll just observe people here and see. So it's a it's a strange shape room. It's a wedge-shaped room. So it's kind of odd in that regard. But a woman came in. She was in a wheelchair. Her daughter was pushing her in. And the first thing she's, you know, there's the wall of glass and everybody's behind the glass. And she just started talking about wow, you used to be able to just come in here and talk to people. And now, you know, you've got a holler screen through this glass. And it really was upsetting to her, you know. And we kind of know why the glass is there, but there are other ways to, to deal with some of those issues. So I think these little, I found that some healthcare providers think, again, well, that's, you know, that would be nice if all the facilities were really nice, but it doesn't really matter. 
at the end of the day. And I'm like, well, I think it does matter. You know, if people are missing appointments, then it matters. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to move the needle. I said, look, if we were trying to move the needle from 98% good to 99% good, okay, maybe facility. But when we're trying to move it from 5% to 100%, anything we can do, you know, we've got to pull out all stops. So that's that's kind of the drum I'm beating. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I'm just wondering where this attitude comes from, and I'm not sure that either you or I have the answer, but it's a question <laughs> worth asking. Why, why would doctors think it doesn't matter? Have we become so acclimatized to this bureaucratic uh, factory style healthcare system mm-hmm. that we know we become immune to the fact that this is not a place where we would be comfortable ourselves if we were ill. Yeah, I think that's some of it. I mean, you healthcare professionals are drinking from a fire hose every day. You know, it's, it's a stressful environment for for you. It's a, it's it's a stressful environment for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think just the you know the the nonstop movement and and again, it's you've got facility administrators who are separate from the healthcare delivery team. So I think there's a disconnect, you know, between there and you know, I, I put on my questions. You know, I was preparing. That was one of the observations I had. Is you know, you're going from patient to patient to patient. You've got five minutes with this one, or three minutes with this one, and you're going nonstop. But that patient may have been sitting there for thirty minutes waiting for you. Yeah, and they're making all kinds of observations. <laughs> And formulating all kinds of things in their mind. Yeah. And 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 so I think it goes beyond just, you know, I don't think it's just insensitive physicians, insensitive healthcare providers. I think it's just partly the system that we're all that we're all working in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just not a healthy pardon the pun, it's just it's it's not a healthy workplace for for anybody. For anybody, yes. I think, yeah. yeah. And in terms of research, you know, you talked about doing focus groups and discussions with patients and carers and so on, which is which is fantastic. And it's really the gold standard. But given that technology is advanced, are there other techniques that we are now able to deploy to show the impact of these places on our patients? Well, I, I think there are. I think it's still largely qualitative. You know, there's... Uh, I mean, there's always the how how can we quantify? You know, there's always the push to quantify, to quantify. Mm-hmm. And so some things, discharge rates, length of stays, the readmissions, those are things that are being looked at. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, is this room design leading to fewer readmissions or, you know, is Mrs. Brown not coming back as often? Those were some of the things I was trying to look at with that healthcare facility. I told you, I said, what, what things could we measure? I said, you're... You're working with patients that have been, it was the first federal rural health clinic in the States, yeah. 1974. So this clinic has been there and a lot of these patients have been there that long. You know, this is an elderly population. And I said, okay, you know, Mrs. Brown's no-show rate. You've got a historical rate. You know when she misses appointments and when she doesn't. You know how well she's managing her diabetes. You know how well you know, you've got some metrics you could look at. So if you started treating missing, started treating Mrs. Brown in this new facility, mm. you could automatically go, wow, she's missing fewer appointments. Mm. That That's a number. She's managed, you know, her A1C is a lot better than it used to be. Mm. You know, so you could start measuring some of those kinds of things just through the electronic health record. It's a challenge here because the EHRs are very non-standardized. All these facilities use different versions. My wife works in this world, and 
one of the challenges is they all are on different EHRs and and they don't really fully know how to use the EHR. So it's hard to really compare data from one place to another. But so, you know, there are those kind of things that that we can Yes. measure but it's 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 largely still qualitative are you aware of anyone using something like google glass to see where our eyes wander when we walk into places yeah like yeah yeah that's a big thing on the wayfinding that's probably one of the biggest areas of this health design research i've got a colleague for example and they're just doing a wayfinding thing with virtual reality yeah and so they've created a virtual world and you know they can watch where they're looking for cues and looking for signage um, so there's a lot. Every time I go to a healthcare conference, there's a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of information on wayfinding. And uh, we have a particularly challenging situation to navigate at what our health sciences center here. Mm. But because you've got angles and you've got no windows and, you know, interior hallways that bear off at different angles than others. And it, it's really challenging. Mm. But so that's a big area of research. You know, one thing I'm looking at is I did a study in a bone marrow transplant unit and just looking if we could improve the quality of stay on a bone marrow transplant unit, a pretty stressful setting. Um, And we, we simply said, how can we give a patient some kind of control over their physical environment while they're in this setting? They're in there for 100 days and they don't have a whole lot of control over anything. And so they have a TV monitor and we thought, well, what if they could just take pictures, their own pictures in and have those displayed on the TV monitor? Yeah. And the initial thought, people were like, well, that's kind of silly. They could look at them on their phones or their, I said, yeah, but, you know, they're often too sick to even pick up their phone. Mm-hmm. And looking on your phone is not the same as having a, a publicly displayed image that your healthcare team can go, oh, are those your grandkids or is that where you vacationed last year? You know, so the spiritual counseling department was really interested in this idea of, as a way to engage the family and the patient in conversation. Mm-hmm. So we we did that and it was a very small study. Uh, had a lot of challenges, a crazy amount of challenges that we really tried to anticipate and, and head off. But just the nature of, I mean, there were staff turnover. We picked bone marrow one reason because there was low staff turnover. It wasn't a floating staff. It was a dedicated staff. So we weren't having to constantly re-explain the protocol, but we still had management change and we had mechanical issues with televisions, not accepting the flash drives and the patients couldn't control the televisions. They still had to get the healthcare staff to come in and turn their pictures on. But when it worked, the staff and the families, I mean, they were so excited. We would digitize pictures for them. Yeah. I mean, literally, some patients just brought in, here's a shoebox full of pictures. I don't know how to do this. And we would digitize them and put them on a flash drive, take them over. And it was like, you know, the whole floor's in there watching their pictures, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just a great – so we're looking at could we make that flow better. But then we could look at, you know, metrics, stress scales. We, we were supposed to, in the, in the electronic health record, every time a, a healthcare staff interacted with a patient, they were supposed to report on their emotional state. And in the healthcare rec, in the electronic health record, they were supposed to report what they observed. And, you know, Moyes was agitated or, or he was what, and they were supposed to ask you. They were supposed to get the reported. And we found out that nobody does that, that they weren't doing that. And a lot of the staff didn't even know they were supposed to do that. So we created a little 
just five more boxes in that field to see were they were they using these pictures, you know, were they commenting on the pictures or, you know, and we didn't get any feedback on that. So that was kind of and it's a very caring staff, you know, but I think it was an indication of they're just too busy to even open up an EHR and put a check box. So, you know, that that's kind of indicative of the of the just the stress of the environment, I think. Okay. So where to from here, Chris? You've talked about uh, a load of things there, really about mm-hmm. improving the environment in a very, in a very sensible, caring way, given the realities of where healthcare is currently positioned. Where mm-hmm. to from here? Where Where do you see the future? Well, uh, yeah, well, that's that's a big question. I, I think until we get healthcare reform and, and healthcare insurance for, uh, I think the Gulf is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think people, you know, the haves can get health care and they can get preventive health care and the have nots just kind of are in a bad spot. So I think until we get that fixed, <laughs> we're going to be kind of chasing our tails in some regard. Uh, telemedicine, uh, we have a lot of, again, I, my point of reference is rural West Virginia and Appalachia in general. I mean, there are a lot of people that just can't get to health care. They, they cannot get to the facility. Transportation is always an issue. I did a webinar where I showed people it's four four air miles from Mrs. Jones' house to the health clinic, but it's a 62-minute drive, you know, because there's no way to get there. And people were really, people out in the Midwest, that really was like, wow, how does that work? Because we got straight roads everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that train. So the telemedicine piece, I think, has great potential, but we don't have a lot of broadband access in these rural areas. Yeah. So the infrastructure is not there to do that. Yeah. My, my wife works in cancer prevention research, and they're all about trying to increase screening rates for colorectal, breast, and cervical cancer. And just even trying to get these facilities to do that is a challenge. So I'm not giving you any good answers. I, I think we're in a challenging you know, a challenging situation. My focus now is on this autism piece and and how can we physically adapt? You know, how can we start making changes using technology, using virtual reality, using, okay, let's, let's make that corner a safe corner for someone, you know, whatever it is. Um, I mean, those are the, those are the things that I'm focused on anyhow. And sensitivity training for, you know, empathy training, and this is one thing, Wes, that really struck me. I was talking with a healthcare provider. She was a you know great person. I was talking to her about how could could we use virtual reality. I have a friend who's a sculptor, and he sculpts in 3D. Mm. So he'll put on 3D goggles, and he'll be standing there in the middle of a room, looking like he's just conducting an imaginary orchestra, but he's seeing the whole sculpture, and it's creating this 3D model that then he can send to a foundry, and they can make. You know, it's, it's, but he, he can bring people into that world with him and sculpt with him. Mm. And so we were talking about, oh gosh, what if I had a person, and I've talked about this with young kids who are much more into technology. What if you could come into their world and treat them? Mm. And, you know, you're, you're a character in their virtual world now. And so the stethoscope's not scary and the vaccination's not scary. And because you're in their space and we, we could do that. I mean, all that technology is there. And when I talked about that with this one healthcare provider, she's like, no, no, no. 
You know, they need to come to our world. That, and I think we've got to really work on that <laughs> aspect. Chris Haddox, it's been a, an honor speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh. Your message rings loud and true right across, uh, even in Australia. Well, thank you. Well, I hope to get to meet you in person one of these days. That would be that would be wonderful to come over there and see what you guys are up to. That would be fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much. Stay safe and healthy over there. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.